Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now for a three-hour conversation, I just, Dr. Morris joins us, global head of commodity research at Citigroup and truly expert on taking the global reach of our oil politics and crossing over to the microeconomics that Amrita Sen was just talking about. And I don't want to talk about the Marshallian cross and fancy micro mumbo jumbo of supply and demand. The arch guess is the measurement of global recession against the marginal emerging market demand is the EM and Pacific Rim come out of COVID. Those are two titanic forces. Who will win? Global recession, price down, or burgeoning EM demand, price up? I think it's the macro environment that wins. And actually, we don't see the burgeoning, the burgeoning demand coming out of China. There's a return, to be sure. But we have to remember that while China was cutting off about a million barrels a day of oil in real demand, they were importing a record amount of oil. They were stockpiling, and that had an impact on the global market. We had our inventory drawing. They had their inventory building. I don't see the international implications of a Chinese recovery having much of an impact on the global setting. Well, if that is the case, what are you watching as the dynamic that drives oil, as Amrita said, down to 90, or you suggest even lower? What is the single distinction right now that drives us to that shock? I don't know whether there's a single distinction. I think it's called both supply and demand. So I think there's another view of supply that uh, Amrita has not talked about. We see uh, over 2 million barrels a day of Western Hemisphere growth this year, including uh, a million three out of the United States. The U.S. is already up a million barrels a day year on year. Canada looks for sure to be up 300,000 barrels a day. Mexico up 100 a day. Uh, Brazil up a couple of hundred a day. Argentina is up more than people thought. Venezuela is even up 300,000 a day year on year. So we think if you look closely at supply, it really is growing and it's accelerating as we move from here to the end of December. Your scenario work on a recession, Ed, got a ton of attention in the last couple of days. Can you help me understand what's behind that word recession to you? 
what is that word? What does it mean? What kind of numbers are you thinking about that get us down to say 45 by the end of 23, 65 by year end? So it really is on the supply demand balance, a drag on the demand side. Almost everybody has reduced their expectations of demand for the year. We reduced ours by about a million two hundred thousand barrels a day. We're at the 2.4, 2.5 million barrel a day level. That's similar to where the EIA and the IEA are, and I expect that we'll be seeing further downward revisions in demand. Demand is simply not growing on an empirical basis to the degree that people had expected. And we've seen that U.S. demand is down. There was a Bloomberg quote yesterday that somebody at Bloomberg saw demand as low as it was in 2014. We think you've got to go back to 2012-13 to see demand at the levels that we're now seeing when it comes to transport fuels like diesel and gasoline. Uh, and if, if the movement is going to be anywhere, it's going to be downward. We're not going to see, there's no evidence that we're going to see this summer surge in driving and summer surge in demand. The price is too high, as it was in 2012-13. Uh, and that's a force in looking at glo global GDP from the perspective of one of the countries that's growing the fastest and has the most robust growth. The demand simply isn't there as people had thought. But if it's not an outright recession, if it's just growth that slows back toward trend, which is the case of, of some people out there, Ed, how does that change the demand picture? What are we talking about then if it's not 65? Well, we're talking about just on our base case, and we still have recession at lower than 50 percent. But we're, we're thinking in our base case that oil is going to go down to 85. And that's looking at it purely on a supply-demand basis, looking at what the headwinds have been in the tailwinds. We've had a lot of tailwinds underlying uh, where oil prices have been. Uh, we might have some more. We don't know what the summer weather is going to be. It could be a very volatile period of time. But we're looking at uh, a supply-demand balance that's seeing inventory builds from here to the end of the year. And that's, that's based on a uh, you know, purely empirical analysis of where we see kind of a 100%, 95% probability of supply. We don't know what's going to happen to Iranian supply. We don't know what's going to happen to Russian supply. But so far, Russian exports into the market have been higher than people had anticipated and higher what the historical trend was a year ago. Ed, this was a fascinating read. Thanks for giving us some of your time this morning and a timely conversation too after briefly looking at a 99 handle on WTI. That was Ed Morse of City. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Right now on Fixed Income, Kelsey Barrow joins us, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at J.P. Morgan, Asset Management, putting real money uh, to work. I believe it's price up, yield down. If on the first order condition of inflation coming in, how will bonds react and where is the opportunity to go from 9% to, say, 7% inflation? Yeah, so what we've been noticing in the market, and there has been incredible volatility in the inflation markets and in the bond markets recently, right. is that there has been a repricing of inflation, particularly when you look at the one-year, one-year inflation swap. So what the market expects, not for this year, but for next year, it's erased all of that inflation risk premium that got baked into the market as a result of the invasion of Ukraine and all of the upside inflation that we've been talking about for essentially half a year. Um, and so what we're trying to debate right now is, is this a true signal that inflation is going to decelerate or is the Fed actually going to need to continue to press? Because the data they're looking at actually is not showing any signal right. yet that they need to uh, stop hiking right. rates. How do you use Bruce Kasman and Michael Feroli's work, particularly on the labor economy? Feroli puts that as, on the weekly prospects. It's not on page one. He's got it buried on page seven, where he's talking about the labor dynamics of the United States. How do you fold the labor question that John Farrow just mentioned into what yield and price are going to do. Yeah, well, the labor market is still very strong, and it does paint a very confusing picture. You have GDP, which is weak. You have the Atlanta Fed, which is tracking at minus 2%. Now, a lot of that is not necessarily organically driven. There is a 200 basis point detraction in that in that forecast from inventories. But really, what we look at in terms of are we in a recession is are we seeing the unemployment rate rise and is nominal income falling? And neither of those things are happening. And to get the unemployment rate to rise this year, you're going to need to see a material deceleration in payrolls growth, which is not what we're expecting. In fact, just to get it back to 4% by the end of the year, you would need 15,000 job loss on average for the next seven months to get there. So we're not in that environment yet. Uh, jobless claims is what we're watching to see if that's taking up. Yeah, but for now, the unemployment John, rate is on the decline. Never in my career have we hoped for job loss. Like, it's the oddest well, let's, thing. Let's be clear. I'm not sure Kelsey is hoping for that. I'm not hoping for oh, that. Oh, yeah, Kelly's yeah, I not. get that. You're but not. But ultimately, when bizarre. you look at the Fed's trajectory of things, there is a belief that's what they're trying to engineer, to take some of the heat out of this labor market, and there will be consequences. Unfortunately, this is how this works, Kelsey. So we're trying to understand how much pain they're willing to tolerate, how far they're willing to push it. And what business the two-year has at 282, if you think this Fed carries on hiking? 
So the two-year yield right now is actually inverted to what the market expects the Fed funds rate to be in just three months' time. So the market is really pushing the Fed right now and saying, how much longer is this rate hiking cycle going to last? And in our view, it's going to last for a bit longer. Uh, it's not yet time for the Fed to uh, say that they've accomplished their mis- mission, even with inflation expectations in the market declining. We do expect that the Fed will hike rates 75 basis points in July. We expect them to hike another 50. And by the way, right now, the market is not even pricing in a full rate hike for December. We think that the market is getting just a bit, uh, going a bit overshot here in terms of the two-year yield, um, and it should be going higher. Well, I heard something similar from Priya Misra over at TD Securities earlier this morning saying essentially inflation's still the problem and the problem is going to stick around. Therefore, expect the Fed to stay the course and be more aggressive. She said what all that leads to is a yield curve that is going to become even more deeply inverted. Is that the same camp you're in, Kelsey? We've been expecting the yield curve to invert. Uh, It has been inverting. Different parts of the yield curve have been inverting at different times. Right now, we're seeing the belly lead in the inversion. So the five to 10-year point is what what is leading. And that's because the market is is testing the Fed. Again, they're testing the Fed and saying, can you really go through with this, particularly as the growth signals are really decelerating? And we noticed that the growth data that's been released more recently Uh, really is showing more of a deceleration than I think people thought. Uh, That third revision to Q1 GDP, I mean, no one looks at the third revision to Q1 GDP. It showed a really meaningful deceleration in services spending. And we need to be careful because we know that the consumer is this primary engine of growth, and they're not as on as strong footing as we originally anticipated. I don't remember when we traded on expectations of inflation and you, Mitch, either, and here we are. It's all confusing to me. I need to squeeze this in, Kelsey. It's just the final question. High yield spreads have been widened out mm. for five straight sessions. We're at 583. You and Bob Michael work closely with each other. I just want to understand from, from you and the team, has that got interesting yet for you? It's a bit of a no man's land right now because spreads are too narrow uh, if we are uh, expecting a full-blown recession, but they're probably uh, too wide if we're going to escape recession. But in the longer term, we do think fundamentals in the corporate, uh, in the high yield market are actually much better better than they have been going into previous recessions. So if you think about it and think about defaults, defaults peaked around 10% in the last, uh, in in the great financial crisis. We don't think they're going to peak at nearly as high as a a rate. And around 600 basis points on spread, that's already pricing in around a 6% default rate and a 35% recovery rate. So actually, a lot is priced in. The market is considering um, a modest amount of default risk, but unfortunately, Uh, the markets do tend to overshoot. And so it is possible that you continue to get that spread widening that goes beyond what we think is probably uh, justified based on our default expectations uh, in this next downturn. Uh, Kelsey, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly. Thank you, Kelsey. He was at Barclays and he was absolutely brilliant. So brilliant, he went off to point seventy-two, where he has to watch the New York Mets. Dean Mackey joins us now, chief economist at point seventy-two on a very changed global economy, a very changed United States economy as well. Dean, what's great about your Stanford economics is you go to the micro data and you go traditional old school. 
and say we must watch jobless claims. We'll see them tomorrow. Define surging jobless claims. Surging jobless claims would be a rise of 50, 100K in a fairly short amount of time. Uh, and, you know, so far we've gone up maybe 20K from the very bottom. Uh, so right now, I think we can confidently say we're, we're not currently in a recession. Um, and because that always happens in recession. Jobless claims surge, the unemployment rate surges, payroll growth declines. None of that's happening right now. It's not saying it won't happen at some point late this year, for example, but we can say what's happening right now with measures like that. The troops went out to the Hoover Institution of Stanford and they talked about regime change a la Bullard and this new word that's out there, front loading. Dean Mackey, if we front load our rate rises, what will that do to the real economy that wraps around labor? I think it depends how much front-loading they actually do. Um, you know, I, I think what we can say is if the Fed keeps going 75 basis points a clip for an indefinite period, we will have a recession soon. Um, so, so really, it depends what the Fed means by that. You know, I think what we've been hearing and what we're seeing in the dot plot is something like another 75 in July, maybe a 50 in September, and then 25 per meeting after that. If we do that, then I think the economy can stay in a slowdown mode and not slip into recession. But if the Fed feels they can't slow down from that 75 per meeting pace, that's really going to clobber the economy. So, Dean, Tom doesn't care about the Fed minutes. Michael McKee didn't actually seem to care that much about the Fed minutes. Do you? Well, we certainly have to pay attention. Um, you know, I, I don't think we'll probably have a decisively different view of the Fed uh, based on the minutes. But we, you know, sometimes there is there are some things in there that are interesting and maybe color the outlook a little bit. But I wouldn't have great expectations for them. Okay, so as we talk about kind of front loading of the hikes of potentially 75, then 75, 75 for who knows how long. At what point are we no longer going to be talking about hiking but cutting instead? You know, I think that, uh, again, that depends partly on how rapidly the Fed raises rates, because if the Fed does induce uh, a very sharp slowdown or recession, then cutting next year is quite possible. But if the Fed is able to slow down and get on a gradual, uh, more gradual hiking path, I don't think they'll necessarily be cutting soon. So it, it really depends on how much front loading and how quickly the Fed does. Dean, let us talk about the arch glide path which is the inflation migration downwards. If there's a kink in the curve, where's the kink? Where does this become hard? John and I are going to talk to Adam Posen in a few days, and he says the new 2% is 3%. Do you have a point six percent or 5% where the dialogue changes because then it's way harder to push inflation lower? I don't think it works quite like that. Um, so I, I tend to think of it more as the different parts of inflation. So we know goods inflation already is coming down. And if you talk to industrial analysts or people that are following those companies, they're telling us prices are falling in those industries already. And we're seeing it in the in the CPI and the PCE, goods, core goods inflation right. is already uh, falling. The services are really what's gonna determine how far we can fall. And 
you know, I think that it's realistic that we fall down into the 3% range. Whether we can get down below that on core PC is a question mark. And it really depends on how well, rapidly wages are rising at that point. Let's go to the rate of change. And I don't mean Mets middle relief. The Mets are killing it this mm-hmm. year, except for another team up in Bronx. But Dean Mackey, very simply here, where's inflation in 60 days, 90 days? How rapidly do, do we come off the panic of 8 9% and come down? How fast is that going to happen? Well, I'm, I tend to focus more on the PCE because that's what the Fed follows. And we're at six and a half there. I think by year end, we can be down into the three or 4% range on, on wow. PCE, wow. PCE price index. Makes you break a 3% on wow. a 30 year. Dean Mackey of 0.72. Thank you, sir. Henrietta Trays right now gives perspective on radio and television across America, Director of Economic Policy Research at Veda Partners with some real tangible experience within the white marble of the Capitol. Henrietta, we have been transfixed today by the questions of the Prime Minister, the drama of what's going on for Prime Minister Johnson in the United Kingdom. Would your world be better off if we had President's questions if we had much more fiery, visible debate within Congress and the sleep fest it's become? I, I would love that. I think that would be fantastic. I think that politicians tend to speak more truthfully when they're put on the spot. And we're always looking for those little mistakes that might hold nuggets of truth, uh, which we've seen from President Biden time and again. Um, I, would, I would love to see that and less agenda journalism, as uh, Yelbert is mentioning. It's a great How- idea. How unified are the Democrats right now in the House, in the Senate? That's a great question. On the House side, my anxiety has been pretty high because we saw the Progressive Caucus um, really derail a lot of the BBB agenda in the back half of last year as they were negotiating that infrastructure bail and ultimately failed to sway the Senate, which is always the case. And the faster House members understand that senators always get their way, uh, the better. On the Senate side, you have a very shaky, you know, faux majority of just 50 senators. Um, and I think there are very few things that they can agree on. One of them is, hey, healthcare really rallies voters during an election cycle. So let's do a reconciliation bill with the healthcare component. Climate change posed very well with um, independent voters who are going to be so critical to turning out the vote in favor of Democrats uh, or Republicans in this next midterm cycle and the uh, general election that's just a couple years away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can cobble together a bill that's uh, a health care package and climate, keep all the toxic stuff out, uh, you can get a real bill passed through the House and Senate by September 30th on the reconciliation front, which is, um, I think, something that will happen. Okay, so Henrietta, if we kind of look at these two scenarios together, when we were watching the Boris Johnson in Parliament talking, trying to get around the questions around his integrity, saying, but look at what we're doing. We are putting 1,200 pounds into bank accounts of UK citizens today. We are cutting taxes. We are doing all of these things on policy. President Biden also has been trying to take action or at least signal action on policy when it comes to fighting inflation. Just look at the news yesterday of potential tariffs uh, talks on $10 billion worth of worth of goods. How many more signals does the president have left to send? What other cards are there to play that are in his control? They're throwing everything at the wall here. Um, I would say a couple things on that. The $10 billion sounds big on paper. That represents roughly 2% of the overall tariffs that have been imposed against China. And the way that it's been expressed to us 
and via the news reporters you all have, the great Jenny Leonard at Bloomberg, is to say that the consumer-facing items, which are you know your bicycles, your back-to-school gear, backpacks, uh, baseball gloves, those are all on list 4A. So when investors think about those tariffs and what the administration is signaling, be mindful that those tariffs are only on at a 7.5% tax rate anyway. So you're talking about a very small portion at the lowest possible tax bracket today. So, Henrietta, is essentially what you're saying, we're not going to feel that? Voters aren't going to feel that? I sincerely doubt it. It sounds very big, $10 billion, but you're looking at $360 billion worth of goods that have been tariffed. And the only rate to reduce is 7.5%, not 25 that exists for the other items that are tariffed. Henrietta Trice there, the Vita Partners. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.